Our focus the last few weeks <clears throat> has been looking at different Old Testament passages, reflecting on the hope that we have in Christ as the coming Messiah. Uh, we have looked at some that were somewhat obscure, the ones that we haven't necessarily uh, seen or heard a lot about. One mentioned in Romans chapter uh, 14, or 15, excuse me, and then last week in Isaiah chapter 25. And today, we will look at one that's more familiar to us during this Christmas season. Uh, we sing a lot about it um, uh, during the Christmas holiday here in church. And uh, we talk a lot about the city of Bethlehem. But what do we really know about it? And what uh, particularly did the prophet Micah uh, want to focus on as he prophesied about this little town. So if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and our passage today is going to look at the promised shepherd king that's prophesied in, Math in Micah chapter 5, and <clears throat> from it we will see some aspects of the promises of the Messiah that lead us to hope in him. There is always a benefit uh, to your study of God's word to know history. Maybe you're not a big fan of history, but history always points from the past to the future, where we were and where we are now, and it informs us, and so it's helpful. So if you're a young person today and you hate history class or, or your history lessons in school, um, let me just encourage you that for you to understand the Bible, you need to understand the history that's found within the Bible. Uh, you need to understand how that connects to world history. Um, and uh, because oftentimes we lose sight of that, we lose that focus, we, we sometimes disconnect uh, leaders like Nebuchadnezzar with real history. And it's real history. He's a, he was a real ruler Israel was a real nation, and uh, these things are important for us to understand who God is and what he has done and what he is doing in our world. So you're going to get a little bit of a, a history lesson today in thinking about the Messiah. So let's remember that Israel as a nation, born from the man Abraham, that God blessed to be the father of many nations, eventually got to the point as they grew and expanded where they wanted to have a king like all the other nations. And in desiring the king, they were really rejecting God because their desire for a king like all the other nations was they wanted a human king and that human king, in essence, was a replacement of God as their king. God was the one that had led them to battle God was the one that had provided and, and ruled over them. But they desired to have a king like the other nations around them. And so God gave them one. And uh, we all know that Saul's reign over Israel was a devastating reign. It was an uh, idolatrous reign. It reflected a lot of the life and the history of all of Israel, which was continually falling into sin continually falling into rebellion. And it just shows us the depravity of all mankind isolated in this little nation of Israel. That the continual sin and the continual rebellion in the nation of Israel, we don't disconnect from that. That's our life, right? That's who we are. People that continually struggle day by day with the sin until the Lord Jesus re uh, returns. So they had this... This era under Saul's reign of, of despair and depravity. But then God blessed Israel with King David. This young, humble shepherd boy that was unqualified to be a, uh, a warrior, to defeat uh, Goliath on the battlefield. He was, uh, he was not a, I, I would say as a shepherd, he was not necessarily the the, the most popular of even the brothers. He was kind of the outcast kid 
that God chose because of a, uh, a quality and a character that, that, that he wanted to manifest in David, a quality and a leadership that he was going to empower David with by his spirit. And so he took the humble uh, beginnings of a young boy and he made him a great king over Israel. Well, then David obviously wasn't a perfect king, and he had Solomon, and, and Solomon, uh, again, had gr- a great moments of prosperity and also fell greatly into sin. And after Solomon, it's important for you to know and understand that the history of Israel is that Israel split into two tribes, the northern and the southern tribes. The northern tribe was called Israel, and the southern tribe was called Judah. And again, we see through the history of Israel that the the northern tribe of Israel fell quickly, went into captivity to the Assyrians, and later Judah uh, existed longer as a tribe until it finally fell under the captivity of the Babylonians. So that's a very brief and simple crash course in what leads us to our passage today. Because during the rule and the reign of the kings of Judah, you have prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah who are serving as prophets during the kings of Judah. Matter of fact, if you look in Micah chapter 1, verse 1, it says the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we are familiar with Isaiah. We're not necessarily familiar with Micah, but what's important for us to know is that Isaiah, as he ministered and and was a prophet, to the nation, to the, um, to the people of Israel. In the same way, Micah was a prophet during the similar time to the kings of Judah. Kings that are mentioned in verse 1, chapter 1, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. And so Micah, as a book, is like a lot of the prophets, they are oftentimes seen as declaring and prophesying great judgment because of the the sin of God's people. But in the same sense, the prophets always give a glimmer of hope for the Messiah who would come and deliver God's people. And so it's often said that throughout the prophets, you can read a very typical, simple pattern of judgment and salvation. And that through that, we see God's glory in both his judgment over sin and yet his salvation because of his covenant promise to his people. God is always faithful to his promises. And we need to remember that. So in in Micah chapter 5, today we're going to look at just the first five verses. And contained within these verses is the famous prophecy of where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But as always, we don't need to just hold on to these prophecies in themselves. We need to look at the greater context and understand why was Micah giving this prophecy and what does this have to do with the Messiah? What did it mean to the people of Judah at that time? And how do we apply it to our lives today? So look in verse 1 of chapter 5. And let me read these verses to us. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. 
and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah's giving us this prophecy, and he's given the people of, of Judah this prophecy to give them hope. Verse 1 is not a verse of hope. <laughs> verse 1 is, a, is really the, the conclusion to chapter 4, where Micah is prophesying great doom and destruction. Now, I'll, I'll admit to you and acknowledge that most scholars struggle to interpret what verse 1 means in chapter 5. Matter of fact, in your Hebrew Bible, which you probably don't have a copy of, in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, is actually chapter 4, verse 14. It's the very end of, the, of, church, of chapter 14. In other words, the Hebrew uh, divisions of verses decided to put our verse 1 at the end of chapter 4 because it was a doom and gloom verse. They're like, hey, let's start off with just a verse 2 of, of, our, of our translation to bring hope, to start off with hope. But regardless, it doesn't matter because we are reminded in chapter 5, verse 1, of the great despair and sorrow that the people of Judah would feel. I believe that this verse is pointing to the prophetic destruction of Jerusalem. That the mustering of troops and the siege that is laid against them is Micah prophesying that one day Jerusalem will come and be destroyed. And again, their scholars are back and forth on if that is what this is prophesying. Some say it's prophesying the threat of Assyria to Hezekiah. But I would agree with other scholars, because they're more smarter than I am, much more smarter, smarter that that it appears that this is a siege, a final siege, that is laid up against the people of Judah. Because remember, Israel has already gone into captivity. So the only thing left of the Jews as a whole is Judah. That's it. Judah retained Jerusalem as a city. Judah retained the lineage of the Davidic king. And so in essence, you could look at the history of Israel and say that all of the, the pressure was on Judah. And what great despair would come with the prophecy from Micah that even Jerusalem itself would fall. And so if you hold your place here in Micah, flip back to 2 Kings chapter 25, you're going to see what I believe is the, the prophecy and the prediction of Micah chapter 5. So 2 Kings 25. Second Kings 25. The very end of the chapter, very end of the story, you'll remember that after 2 Kings in the in the English Bibles, we have First and Second Chronicles, which is just a retelling of the history of Israel. So chapter 25 of Second Kings, the last chapter of the story of Israel, is the fall and the captivity of Judah. Verses 1 through 7, And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. That's the siege that Micah's talking about. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh month of the king of Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden through the Chaldeans 
though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of Arabia or Araba. And the, the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. Now notice verse 7. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And they put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and they bound him in chains, and they took him to Babylon. Now Micah prophesies to the people of Judah, Gather your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now that poetic wording I think reflects the great despair and the great turmoil from a prophecy or a prediction about the fall of Jerusalem because what worse news can you hear if you're the last remaining tribe of Israel Judah and you're hearing that the destruction of Jerusalem will come and captivity will come And notice that it's, it's worded as a strike upon the cheek of, of the judge of Israel, referencing at that point the last king of Judah, who is Zedekiah. Now here's what's interesting. That he wasn't crushed, he was struck upon the cheek. And the reason that that's important is because Zedekiah was not killed that day. His eyes were gouged out. They promenaded his sons in front of him and murdered them in front of their father. And just imagine for a moment if Zedekiah was killed. At that moment, if he's killed, or in the years of his captivity, if he's killed, the Davidic line is done. But instead, God preserves Zedekiah. In Zedekiah's captivity, he has more children. And his children's children have more children until finally it leads us to the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. And so while there was a strike and a blow against the the king there that day, as the nation of Judah, the the remaining Israelites still as as a tribe of people, were gathered together, the prophecy of judgment upon them was because of their rebellion, but they, there is a glimmer of hope. And the glimmer of hope is you will not be destroyed. You'll be struck upon the cheek, but you will not be destroyed. And so Micah's message of hope, his prophecy of hope, starting in verse 2 down to verse 5, is the hope for a people who are looking forward to the the destruction of their nation. So imagine that, Americans. Imagine the prediction of this great nation that we live in and the promise that it would be destroyed. Put yourself in the place of these these, these, uh, Jews for just a moment. And consider their despair. They had fought, they had literally battled against each other in a civil war when the tribes split. They have already seen their brothers from the tribe of Israel be hauled off into captivity. And now the promise is this there will be a great blow to you as well. Which is why in verse 2 we see the great hope start with the word but. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This is the hope that they needed to hear. And this is the hope that we know is fulfilled in the child who was born in Bethlehem. 
Not just the hope of the Jews, but the hope of all who believe in him. Because Micah's message of hope is our hope as well. For the Messiah came to give hope to all who are in despair and who suffer captivity. The Jews were looking for freedom from captivity from their foreign enemies. But the world needs freedom from spiritual darkness and the slavery that we have to sin. That is why Jesus, born in the manger in the city or the town of Bethlehem, is the light of hope that's promised in these verses. The hope that we have of escape from great despair when we look to Jesus Christ, born of Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, Nazareth being the hope of salvation for all who believe. And so what does this prophecy teach us today about the Messiah and the hope that we have in him? Well, one, it teaches us that he is David's heir. We've studied this the last few weeks. But Bethlehem signified that the Messiah would be the heir of David. That he would be David's son. We talk a lot about the lineage of David. We talk more about David's lineage than you probably even consider about your lineage. And remember that it's important for us to see that to, re- to reflect upon the faithfulness of God. As, sa- as crazy as it sounds, when you are doubting the faithfulness of God, the genealogies remind us of his faithfulness. That you have no reason to despair that God is going to do what he promises to accomplish. That he is not going to leave you or forsake you. How do I know that? Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's why you know that. Just as Micah prophesied years and years before he was ever born. Now we know Bethlehem is this small town six miles outside of Jerusalem. But it's this small town that was the city of David. It was this small town that would once again be the hope for the Jews. David was born in Bethlehem. He was the hope for the Jews when their first king turned away from the Lord. When he led the nation into sin. He was the one that would bring hope to the Jews, and and then the promise to David that his throne would exist forever. This covenant that God had made with David is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus being born in this little town, the same town that David grew up in. Now notice in verse 2, it says that, it says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Micah prophesies that name Bethlehem Ephrathah because there were other Bethlehems. And so this is clearly a a, a, a geographical uh, specification so that we can understand which Bethlehem was being spoken of. And Bethlehem Ephrathah was, um, uh, was a designation because the Ephrathites are people that we read about in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, when Abraham's son Jacob, or or Isaac's son Jacob buries Rachel, he buries her in Ephrath, or Ephrathah. And later, it's the Ephrathites, like Boaz, who marries Ruth, who point us to Jesus because of the children that they produce, which down the line is Jesse and then David. All of these people are Ephrathites, born in the city of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And it would be the same birthplace of the Messiah, this very small town during Jesus' day wouldn't even be considered a city. And yet in its humble state, the Messiah would come and and reign and rule 
So as Micah writes these prophecies, we come to the New Testament. And this is exactly the point that Matthew and Luke try to make in their gospel accounts. They want people to see that because of this prophecy that existed in, in Micah about Bethlehem, that Jesus could be proven to be born in Bethlehem. Matthew starts out in Matthew 1.1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the point of Matthew writing. He wants to prove to his readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised heir of David's throne, the one who comes as the fulfillment of the blessings of Abraham to all nations. And how do we verify that Jesus is the Messiah? One of the most important ways is that if he's really born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, he is truly the Messiah. Matter of fact, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, the Jews began to argue with him and, and, and dispute that Jesus was really the Messiah. In John chapter 7, verses 40 through 43, Jews come to dispute, and, and some are disagreeing that Jesus is really the Christ. And it says in verse 41, others, says, others said, this is the Christ. And some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. One of the disputes about Jesus being the Messiah was that people did not consider Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. He was a Galilean. He was from Nazareth. And so the dispute was about where his birthplace was. Much like we Memphians dispute about where Elvis was born. Oh, he was born here. No, he wasn't born here. He was born in Mississippi. And that's like this big debate, right? And there's a, a birthplace, was it in Clarksdale or something like that? Somebody help me? Yeah, maybe. Somewhere, not here. And then we have Graceland and there's this dispute. Who, who gets credit for Elvis Presley? And the people believed and thought, well, Jesus isn't the Messiah because he was, he was from Nazareth. And again, that's where history comes in. That's where the importance of the geographical uh, specifications of God's word comes in because we can find our comfort and our hope in knowing the truthfulness of God's word and to see the providences of God's word as he leads Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem because a pagan ruler decided to take a census and collect taxes from the people. And because of those things and those providential ways that God is bringing Jesus to Bethlehem to be born, he is revealing to us his faithfulness. And so as David's heir, we trust that God is faithful. But I think Bethlehem represents humiliation. Bethlehem being this obscure town in Jesus' day, it didn't seem to make sense to be the place where the king of the Jews would be born. And yet that is exactly the point. That the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, born in human flesh as both 100% God and 100% man came down, condescended in humiliation. Putting on the flesh of man was a humble act for our God. Facing the scorn and the shame of his enemies and receiving those things so that he could display the great love of God for his enemies, that is humiliation. Every crack of the whip, every insult, every spit upon his face was an act of humiliation that the Lord Jesus received 
so that you and I could go free from our sin. Bethlehem uh, reflects those humble beginnings. Those despised and lowly shepherds at the manger. The lack of pomp and circumstance at his arrival. All these things reflect the humility of Christ. And church, as our Savior displays such humility, so we also should bear such humility. We come to this time of year and as we reflect upon the humility of our Savior, we're reminded of the glory of God that He solely deserves. And in His humiliation, and not demanding the glory that he deserves, not demanding the justice that he deserves, in the same way we must live humbly with one another. We must be the humble citizens of this city and this state and this nation and this world. We should exude humility. When we suffer, we must suffer humbly knowing that God has never promised us perfect health. When we're attacked, we must humbly know that an attack upon God's people are truly just attacks upon God himself. Because what do we really deserve from God but his complete and total wrath for our sin? But praise be to God that he has sent a deliverer, a way of escape, the promised Messiah Jesus, perfect in every way, that he has provided unconditional grace upon us. And let that be the fuel for our humility and our gratefulness as we trust in him alone for salvation. And so this this humble town, Bethlehem, teaches us, most importantly, that Jesus, as David's heir, was the fulfillment and the reflection of God's faithfulness. But secondly, we learn that he's our king, that the promise of another ruler was coming. And, And again, for Judah, that was important because the, the history shows us that that their, that their leadership and that their, their kings cease to exist. So imagine you're an Israelite and you're reading these words from Micah many years later. You're now in captivity. You're now dispersed and exiled from your land. You might not even have in, in the, the, the city or town that you've been sent to by Assyria or Babylon, you might not even have the full uh, opportunity to worship that you once had. You can't go to the temple anymore. It's been destroyed. There are no longer kings to rule over your nation because the nation has been dispersed. And you feel hopeless. And yet there's the promise. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. There will be a king. There will be one who will lead you. A true king, Micah prophesies. But not one of earthly descent. If Israel... And their history shows us anything, it's that men cannot truly and perfectly lead men. We fail. We struggle in sin to lead the way that God wants us to lead. And so truthfully and honestly, we need Jesus to come because he is a perfect king. 
He is not just an earthly king. He is both God and man leading us perfectly, guiding us perfectly as king. And what great hope we see for the people of Judah to hope in that this would be a king. Notice it says coming forth from old, from ancients of, of days. That can be considered the eternality of this king. Again, there's discussion on both sides. This, can, this could mean that, that this king will be one from the ancient of days like uh, the prophecies in Daniel. Or it could just possibly mean earlier days, days which God promised this continual covenant to David and his lineage. And both, again, are hopeful thoughts. I think it refers more just to the the aspect of God's faithfulness and promising a, a king from David's line. But all of this points to the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. But as this king is promised to the people, notice his kingly rule over them in verse 3. Before this Messiah comes, before this child is born, we see that he shall give them up until the time. What does that mean? It means that God is king. And what it means is that this prophecy is that that the people of Israel will suffer until the appointed time that this child will be born. He shall give them up until the time. Adam read this earlier in the New Testament. When the fullness of time had come. We understand that the history of Israel not only was in captivity, but the intertestamental period, which is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God did not even speak to to God's people. No prophets, no words from the Lord, nothing. We could consider that the the exclamation point of God giving up his people until the time. Why did he give them up? Because of their rebellion and sin. Because they continually turn to sin, they continually turn to idols. Why does he do such a thing? Because he's king. That's what a king does. He executes justice and he does so perfectly. And he does so with righteousness. And because honestly, we don't truly trust in in the King Jesus in our lives as the ruler over all if we don't trust him and accept that sometimes he allows suffering to come into our lives if, if he's truly our king, then we will fully accept that his plan for us may be to suffer. We will fully accept that by following him in obedience, that that, that might actually mean pain and disgrace and shame upon this earth. That's what it means. That God is so sovereign and in control of our lives that we are trusting him even in the worst of times. And so do you trust his rule over your life? Do you trust his providences knowing that hope is on the way? As you look through the the history of Christianity... We're reminded of brothers and sisters who suffer greatly upon this earth for the glory of God alone. 
And they receive that suffering well because they know that hope is coming. They know that the phrase until the time means that even now we look to Christ to come, but until the time that he comes, we will suffer. Many of you remember the, in 2018, the American John Allen Chow journeyed to a remote Indian island to share the gospel with natives who were known to be hostile to outsiders. He rented or chartered a boat and convinced someone to take him offshore so that he could kayak to this shore and share the gospel with these natives that had literally attacked and killed visitors multiple times that had tried to attempt to reach these people. His first attempt to get to the island ended in a retreat. As he kayaked back from the shore to the boat with an arrow stuck through his Bible. But he had no intention of going home. He wanted to share Christ with these natives, even if it meant his own death. When his journals were recovered later, the night before his death, he wrote these words. He said, I don't want to die. Would it be wiser to leave and let someone else continue? No, I don't think so. I still could make it back to the U.S. somehow as it almost seems like certain death to stay here. Why does this beautiful place have so much death here? I hope this isn't one of my last notes, but if it is, to God be the glory. And then he writes to his parents. You might think that I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please don't be angry at them or God if I get killed. And he signs off his letter, Soli Deo Gloria. That next day, he was killed on the beach and buried with his body unable to be recovered. Because no one is brave enough to go back because of the natives. Now the attitude by many people after his death was an outcry of recklessness. But couldn't you also say that this young man was just trying to be faithful? And in his faithfulness, he was willing to even accept death to try and take the gospel to the nations? Even if it meant his own very death? I think if we truly love the Lord Jesus, we will do what he commands because he is our king. And as we submit fully to his reign over our lives, we put ourselves in harm's way at times for the sake and the glory of God's name. Which is why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever, will lo whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus, the child born in Bethlehem, is not just the ruler of Israel, he's the ruler of all. And he calls us to sacrifice our comforts, to sacrifice the things of our lives that oftentimes make us feel safe and provide security. And he says, put the gospel and the spread of the gospel as a priority over those comforts. That may not mean you lose your life. It may mean you lose your friends. It may mean you lose your job. But isn't the gospel important enough isn't the obedience to the Lord Jesus important enough to do such a thing if he truly is our king? 
Number three, Micah reminds the people of God in verse four that not only is he the heir of David, not only is he the king, but he's their shepherd. Verse four says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. God in his wisdom chose the shepherd to be the great metaphor for his care of his people. Remember that God was always the shepherd of Israel. That he was the one that guides his flock through the dark valleys and the narrow paths to find peace and rest. In verse 4, identifying Jesus as shepherding the flock in the strength of the Lord has the shadow or the reflection of the divinity of this shepherd. That in verse 3, he is born of a woman, and yet verse 4, he is shepherding the flock of God. And he's doing so in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. Meaning the glory and the fame and the honor that belongs to God alone also belongs to this promised shepherd. This is a great message of hope. In Ezekiel chapter 34, there's a similar metaphor that the descendant of David will be the promised shepherd to come and feed the people of God properly. In Ezekiel 34, there is a, uh, a rebuke by the prophet of all the leaders of Israel who were improperly feeding God's people. So you could say they were really poor shepherds. Ezekiel 34 verse 7 He says, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beast since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, he says, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Clearly, this is a rebuke to under shepherds that God had placed in charge or over the leadership of of Israel that were literally fending for themselves. They weren't truly feeding the sheep. They weren't giving the, the, the flock of God the spiritual food that they needed. They were leading them astray from God. And so what does he do? He rebukes them. In that same chapter, he promises, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so again, this promise of a shepherd, this promise of one who will not only feed the people properly, he will give them security and help them dwell secure, as it says in Micah chapter 4. That he will be great to the ends of the earth. He will be a both God and man. He will lead the, the, the sheep. He will guide the sheep in the strength of the Lord. Feeding them, guiding them, protecting them. And that his, great, his fame will be great to the ends of the earth. And thus Jesus is born and declares that he's the good shepherd. He says, I know not my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And so Jesus comes as the promised Messiah, as the one who will guide us and, and, and be our security and our source of life. Not from an earthly perspective, but a spiritual perspective. He will guide us and direct us throughout this world to eternity. When I think about being a sheep that belongs to God, the first aspect, the, the biggest aspect of my sheepness is my weakness. Folks, we're sheep. That's how God describes us, not lions. We're sheep, not wolves. This speaks of the utter dependence of every aspect of our life that we put upon the Lord Jesus. And he can carry it. He can bear the weight of our struggles and our despair. He will not ever lead us astray. He will constantly guide us and go before us as he did when he went to the cross. And so the shepherd and sheep imagery is just as much about the character of Christ as it is about the character of man and our need for him. And so are you trusting the shepherd to guide you? Are you confident to follow him down the paths that he desires for you to go? Sometimes those paths don't make sense. Sometimes they don't look very comfortable. Sometimes they're dark. But we have to trust him. We have to trust the guidance that he gives us. And how do we trust him? How does he guide us? He guides us through his word and his spirit. He doesn't guide us by our emotions. Well, I just feel like this is what I need to do. That's being guided by your emotions. Don't trust your emotions. Your feelings are based oftentimes on your circumstances. Your circumstances are oftentimes, and your, your circumstances and your emotions are oftentimes based upon your physical health. And sometimes when our physical health is bad, it leads us to, to interpret our circumstances a certain way. It causes rises in, in levels of, of testosterone and different things going on in our body. And so our physical lives and our physical emotions are guided and directed by all kinds of things outside of God. And so if we are allowing our emotions to guide us, then a cheeseburger could guide us the wrong way. Or a, a big bag of cheeseburgers. We also cannot be guided primarily by our circumstances. Remember, God is providential in all things. And as he guides us by our circumstances, it doesn't mean that every opportunity that's presented to us is what God wants us to do. And the reason we know that is because circumstances that surround us change. God doesn't operate in change. God wants to guide us by his word that never changes. He wants to guide us by the Holy Spirit who never changes. And so it's by his word that we can interpret our circumstances to see if they're God's will for our life. Not the other way around. If our circumstances interpret, interpret, interpret the word of God, then we have it backwards and we'll be led into sin. But notice these three verses, all in Psalm 119, verse 19. I am a sojourner on the earth, he says. Hide not your commandments from me. If you're a sojourner on the earth and you need guidance and you're, you feel like a wanderer, what does the psalmist say? Don't hide your commandments from me. He doesn't say, help me understand my emotions. Help me understand my psychology. He says, 
Hide not your commandments from me. Verse 35. He says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Lead me like a shepherd. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. In verse 105, which we're most familiar with, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He is our shepherd. Lastly, he is our, he is our peace. He is our peace. The, prom- the Messiah has promised to bring peace. From a nationalistic perspective, the Jews hoped in the Messiah who would bring a peace from their oppressors. They didn't want to be captives anymore. They wanted to worship in the temple freely again. They didn't want to live in, as foreigners in a strange land. But what they wanted and what they needed were two different things. They needed spiritual peace and reconciliation with God. And thus is the Messiah who has promised to do more than any earthly king could do. He is going to provide for us from the rule of his throne a peace that will literally impact the world. We're reminded by the prophet Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. There's the the rule and the reign, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How does he bring us peace? He brings us peace, peace by the death on the cross. He brings us peace by being the substitute for sin. The greatest war to ever be waged on this earth is not between nations, it's between God and sinful man. And that true peace comes to earth when Jesus Christ made a way where there seemed to be no way for reconciliation with God. He gave his life as a substitute for sinners, trading his perfection for their sin, and taking sin upon himself, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so as you and I accept Christ, we are justified, we are declared innocent by the perfection of Jesus Christ so that we can stand before God reconciled to him. And with that reconciliation comes peace. With that reconciliation, the wall of hostility is destroyed, as Ephesians 2 says. And so nations come together under Christ when they trust in him. Differences among people, attitudes, and so on. We all come together, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because the peace is coming fully, again, as Brother Adam said. We already have a peace with God through Jesus Christ, and yet he is bringing a global peace when Jesus comes again. And that's the the peace that we long for. Are Are we reconciled with God? Are we at peace with him now? Yes, absolutely. Praise the Lord. We no longer have to fear him. We can approach him in, in humility, without fear and trembling. Because he is our peace. Jesus is our peace, as Paul quotes in Ephesians chapter 2. And yet one day the peace will be completed. As we read last week, tears will be wiped away. Reproach will be taken fully. And the earth will be at peace again as it was in the Garden of Eden. And so my challenge for you today is to look to this passage in Micah chapter 5 and 
and be reminded of the promise of the Messiah who comes as the heir of David, who comes as our king, as our shepherd, and as our peace. And as the people of Israel or Judah particularly would have found, may you also find hope in him and may you trust in his name alone to be saved. Pray with me. Father.